Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Age of Radio. You are listening to Texas History Lessons slow walk through Texas history made in Texas by a Texan for everyone everywhere. Once upon a time, there was a merchant, about 40 years old, who was married to an older woman who was also a successful merchant. They had a son and four daughters. Another son, barely three years old, had died a few years before. The other boy would sadly die a few years later. And the year that we're looking at here, however, was 610 AD. And the man, who had been orphaned at a very young age and raised by an uncle, took his family to Mount Hera for a spiritual retreat of sorts. While there, they would pray to God and give alms and support the poor that visited And this was not an unusual event. They did it yearly. But in 610, something different happened. Resting in a cave, the man received a message from God. And he took that message. And out of that was born one of the major religions in the world. And the followers of that religion created an empire. That man's name was Muhammad. About six centuries before, a tent maker, who was a member of a religious faith founded on a visitation and messages from God given to a man named Moses centuries before, as he shepherded a flock of sheep, and to another man even centuries earlier named Abraham in ancient Mesopotamia, well, this man who was a tent maker, he also received a message as he traveled down a road. The man on the road's name was Saul, and he was from Tarsus. He was an enemy of a heretical Jewish sect, but after he received the message on the road to Damascus, he took the little Jewish sect and spread it until it one day became the official religion of the Roman Empire, long after the empire had executed him. All of these events are matters of belief and faith. They are also the foundations of several powerful ideas that have shaped the course of world history and have a role in the emergency of a nation-state named Spain, and they would have an impact on Spain's empire that reached across the world. Judaism, the religion of Abraham and Moses, was the faith of Jesus and Paul, the man on the road to Damascus. Christianity and the Catholic Church were the result of the ideas and messages of Jesus that Paul and others spread throughout the world. And Islam, the result of the merchant Muhammad's message and ideas, were initially meant to be a corrective force to Judaism and Christianity. Two faiths that had Muhammad believed 
strayed from their true purpose. The promotion of a pure vision. Each of these, though, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, came together on the Iberian Peninsula, where Spain and Portugal are, and shaped the people that would create the idea of Spain and carry the ideas and practices of Spain to the New World. Welcome to Texas History Lessons. I'm Michael, and that might seem like a strange way to begin our look at New Spain and the borderlands of which Texas was a part of. But for the better part of a year, I've been trying to figure out how to approach Texas history, starting with Spain's establishment of New Spain and its empire that stretched pretty much around the world, all the way to the Philippines. And I kept having this idea that ideas were central to the story. The things that created Spain from 700, 800 AD to the 1500s had a lot to do with Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. And these ideas help establish an identities in Spain at that time that was still being shaped that would be carried across the sea to New Spain. So in this lesson, we begin our Texas time travels in which we will look at the period of Spanish Texas. The Kingdom of Spain held claim to Texas for over 300 years, during which it encountered setbacks and successes and definitely made lasting impacts on the Americas, the United States, the Southwest, and the state of Texas. But again, why begin with the discussion of Judaism, Christianity, and Islam? Because it is important to begin our journey by understanding the power of ideas. We need to recognize that when we think of Spain today, what we're talking about didn't really exist in 1492. Just like Texas is a state of mind, so are many of the things we take for granted. I came across a quote in a book by author Amy Jill Levine. That pretty well summarizes the avenue I'm talking about and focusing on here. She wrote, quote, that a text without context is just pretext for making it say anything one wants. But the more we know about the original context, the richer our understanding becomes and the greater our appreciation for the artists and composers who created the works initially. End quote. And personally, I think this is applicable to the study of history as well. Ideas are powerful things. In an early episode of Texas History Lessons, I asked the questions, what is Texas and what made Texas into Texas? In previous episodes, I've suggested that Texas is an idea created by its people and it evolves over time. Now that is very simplistic, I know, but it is a part of a larger whole. Maybe the words of John Steinbeck can help me out here. He said, Texas is a state of mind. Texas is an obsession. Above all, Texas is a nation in every sense of the word. And he also added, 
the following. I have to say that Texas is a state of mind, but I think it is more than that. It is a mystique closely approximating a religion. It's this mystique that has developed over time. That's been fueled by ideas and dreams of people. Now, I know this is not original at all. You've probably heard this your entire life. For example, in November 2012, musician and activist Bono gave a speech at Georgetown University in which he said, America is an idea. Ireland is a great country, but it's not an idea. Great Britain is a great country, but it's not an idea. That's how we see you around the world as one of the greatest ideas in human history. And then even Lindsey Graham, whom almost every one of y'all have probably heard of, South Carolina Republican, he even made the statement a few years ago, America is an idea, not a race. He added to this with a release statement, which carried these words. I've always believed that America is an idea not defined by its people, but by its ideals. And if idea seems too limiting, then expand it to ideas, ideals, or the often heard dream. Now, one of the preeminent historians of United States history, especially concerning the foundation era, the era of the Revolutionary War, was a gentleman named Gordon Wood, and he took to the importance of ideas, naming one of his many great books, The Idea of America. Now, if you've watched Goodwill Hunting, then you've heard of him. He's one of the scholars discussed in the Harvard bar scene where Matt Damon destroys the guy trying to show off his knowledge. You remember, Chucky's like, are we going to have a problem I don't understand? And then Clark, the smart Harvard student, says, no, no, there's no problem here. I was just hoping you might give me some insight into the evolution of the market economy in the southern colonies. My contention is that prior to the Revolutionary War, the economic modalities, especially in the southern colonies, could most aptly be characterized as agrarian pre-capitalist. And then Chucky gets upset. Let me tell you something, all right. But Will steps in and says, of course, that's your contention. You're a first-year grad student. You just got finished reading some Marxian historian, Pete Garrison, probably. You're going to be convinced of that till next month when you get to James Lemon. And then you're going to be talking about how the economies of Virginia and Pennsylvania were entrepreneurial and capitalist way back in 1740. That's got to last until next year. You're going to be in here regurgitating Gordon Wood, talking about, you know, the pre-revolutionary utopia and the capital-reforming effects of military mobilization. And then Clark, of course, said, well, as a matter of fact, I won't, because Wood drastically underestimates the impact of social... Will says, Wood drastically, Wood drastically underestimates the impact of social distinctions prededicated upon wealth, especially inherited wealth. You got that from Vickers, Working Essex County, page 98, right? Yeah, I've read that too. Were you going to plagiarize the whole thing for us? Do you have any thoughts of your own on this matter? Or do you, is that your thing? You come into a bar, you read some obscure passions and pretend you pawn it off as your own idea just to impress some girls and embarrass my friend? And then he goes on and finishes out by saying, the, the sad thing about a guy like you is in 50 years, you're going to start doing some thinking on your own, and you're going to come up with the fact that there are two certainties in life. One, don't do that. And two, you dropped 150 grand on an education you could have got for a dollar fifty in late charges at the public library. Now, I'm sorry, I digress. But we were talking about Gordon Wood, and that's one of my favorite movies. And it is pertinent what they're talking about here to what I'm talking about. 
I always love that scene, especially because it's referencing real historic works and arguments, especially the arguments, because once you start getting serious into learning history, you will find that everything is not so simple. We get into arguments about meaning, interpretation of the events, and the battling of ideas, the ideas that provide meaning, which is why I'm bringing up Gordon Wood. So on we go. Now, a quote from a New York Times review of Woods' The Idea of America provides some interesting thoughts. The review says, As a historian, he, Gordon Wood, asks not why people do things, but what they think they are doing and how their thoughts have changed through time. Ideas are studied not as underlying motives for action, but in another way. Wood believes that, and these are his words, ideas and language give meaning to our actions, and there is almost nothing that we humans do to which we do not attribute meaning. So that takes the importance of ideas to another level. Not only do we have the question of cause and effect, which is valid and a necessary part of the study of history, but then there is the avenue that Gordon Wood took, the question of what the people were thinking, what were the driving ideas they were creating, and how those ideas changed over time. Because, to reiterate, ideas and thought give meaning. And to go back to the arguments that arise in the study of history, Wood himself, just in the title of the book, brings up a point of contention for some people. The name of the book was The Idea of America. Now, words are very powerful things, and for some, certain words can be a point of unease or contention. For example, where once it was commonplace, and seriously, it still is, especially in pretty much mainstream popular histories, the word Indian, when applied to American Indians, is used quite regularly and liberally. It's unavoidable. But for some, me throwing the word Indian around when I could have used the more specific words of Comanche or Kiowa or Potawatomi, the actual people that they identify themselves as, when I could have called them for who they are or were, well, in our modern era, it carries some negative connotation. For some, it's just downright insulting, and I get it. It's for that reason that I have avoided the use of word Indian and instead used the name of the people or Native American, Indigenous First Peoples, etc. I choose to do that, not out of fear of repercussion, but out of respect. And when you get right down to it, there are discussions that can be had about these alternate terms as well. But I'm going to say Indian from time to time, not because I'm being disrespectful, but because it has been the dominant word, for right or wrong, since the settlement of the continent by the Europeans. And it is in everything you read. And when I quote a historical person or a historical document or just a history book, if Indian is used, then that's the term I will use. Not to overstress the point, but the point is that I mean well, and even though I might offend, my intent is never to be offensive. Except perhaps when I'm ridiculing James Bowie, and I probably should stop doing that. In Wood's book, The Idea of America brings up another issue regarding word choice that has been brought to my attention for pretty much everyone. His use of America and what he means by using the word is pretty straightforward. 
He's talking about the United States. No problem, right? And when you hear American, you know it's about a citizen of the United States. Again, though, but for some, it, it is an irritating thing. Not for a lot. Maybe not even that big a deal. But it is something, and there's a reason behind it. Now, the reason behind the use of America and American and in relation to the United States and United States citizens has its roots all the way back at the time of settlement of the British colonies before there was the United States. British officials referred to their subjects as Americans that lived in America, and it stuck. After the revolution, the winners created the United States of America, and it became ingrained. Again, no problem, right? The problem is that from perspectives of many that live in America, North and South, or the Americas, Northern, Central, and Southern America, they don't live in the United States, but they are considering themselves to be Americans. So it's, again, an irritant when they see the word used so casually just for the United States. Now, there's no easy solution to this. It's a phrase that has been deeply embedded into tradition, and it's not going to change anytime soon, or to be honest, probably ever. But having been made aware of this, I will try to use my word choice and pick my words carefully, not out of fear. Again, I'm not scared, but out of respect. Canadians are Americans. It's true. Mexicans are Americans. Brazilians are Americans. And United States citizens are Americans. Now, this might anger some people. And this is not a political issue for me. But seriously, I'm not going to lose any sleep over it. It's not a political issue, like I said, for me, or anything else you might want to turn it into. It's just a yet another example of the arguments and the contentiousness that arises when you get deep into understanding history or talking about history. And I'm not even getting started on the problem with the phrase like Latin America, because when I say Latin American, you have a certain idea in your head, don't you? But what of the French speakers of Canada or Cajun Louisiana? Aren't they also strictly speaking, if we're going to be very specific, Latin Americans? And there's a reason why that term is upsetting to some. I'm not even going to get into it because I think I've wasted too much time. Not that I consider this a waste, but it's important to talk about. But I don't want little things like this to get me off a topic where I'm actually headed here. So what's a poor Texas history podcaster to do with all of these issues? Not much. My answer is I'm going to acknowledge it, respect it, and move on. I will do my best not to be offensive, but in the end, I will also be offending someone. So no matter what I do, America and Americans will be used when talking about people from the United States, especially when using quotes from historical figures and historical sources. But I'll try to be more specific on my own. It's not something that I want to get bogged down on. I would like to thank Adrian, however, for bringing this to my attention and showing that this isn't even an issue that exists. Because I believe the more we know, the better we are able to get along. Growing up studying history in Texas and the United States, the focus is pretty heavy on those places and perspective and even knowledge or understanding of Canada 
or Mexico, the history of those two places is very lightly touched on, at least in my experience. But I think they are important, and I want to know more. And if you haven't noticed, I'm not approaching Texas history from the east. Except from the east, meaning Iberia, where Spain and Portugal are. And I think I've made it apparent why. I'm not doing something revolutionary here. First and foremost, I began with the people that were here before 1492. And they're going to remain central to my focus, even when we get into New Spain. I'm going to be using different perspectives. Then the focus is on Spain and New Spain. And then the other players, France and England, will come in and be given their proper attention. So, I think that's a good spot to wrap up this episode. This lesson will continue in the next episode. It will not be delayed. It will be out next week. But we're going to take a break. Thank Age of Radio for hosting Texas History Lessons. And then we're going to come back and kind of round up the show and talk about a little couple of things in, and then we'll be moving on. Okay. I want to thank everybody for listening. Next episode, we'll continue this discussion and go deeper into the importance of Spanish heritage in the Texas identity. And I want to thank my Patreon supporters for helping me out. And you can also, if Patreon's too big a commitment, you can buy me a cup of coffee. Link's in the show notes. I want to thank everybody for listening, all the people that have given me some supportive comments in the recent and in the past, and I really appreciate it. And one of the things that being a Patreon supporter, buying me a cup of coffee helps me do is helps me get me books for research and study and preparing for the show. And one of the books I did pick up recently, and it's something I've been wanting for quite a while, it's a book called Forever Texas. Texas, the way those who lived it wrote it. And it's edited by Mike Blakely and Mary Elizabeth Goldman. Now, this is a neat book for a number of reasons. Mike Blakely, if you recall, I've talked about him in the past. He's a Texas author. He does historical fiction. Uh, One of his books is one of my very favorite books, Comanche Dawn. I encourage everybody to check that one out. Um, And he's also a singer. But he and Mary Elizabeth Goldman created this book a while back. They edited it and compiled it. And it's a collection of people's thoughts about Texas. A lot of authors. It has everybody from uh, President George W. Bush, Phil Graham, Lyndon Johnson, Dale Evans, Stephen Austin, Sam Houston, on and on and on. Elmer Kelton is in here. And I want to end this episode with a quote from a certain author named Jory Sherman. If you haven't heard of Jory Sherman, he's a Western writer. And he had some really great things to say. And I just want to read briefly because it does tie into the questions that I've been asking. What is Texas? Why is Texas the way it is? And Mr. Sherman writes near the end of his essay, 
Texas is a place where dreamers go, a place where dreamers are born. It is a place where you can find out who you are, where you came from, and where you are going. Texas was that dream in my father's mind, that same dream that lured men like Richard King, Moses and Stephen Austin, Jim Bowie, and Davy Crockett to set foot on disputed soil and put down roots, men with ideas that continue to inspire those of us who inherited the fruits of the dreams they dreamed, the same dreams that brought men and women to NASA and launched them into space, that frontier Behind the sky, I first glimpsed in the oil fields near Monahans, toward those stars that filled the night sky when that small boy looked to the heavens. Texas is the history of a great nation, of man's eternal quest for spiritual fulfillment, for the destiny he has always sensed was waiting for him in such a land. Texas is that vast and mysterious country of the mind and heart, the land that drums up your temples like a heartbeat, that sings in your veins and hums in your ear like an ancient song that whispers like the Gulf of Mexico in a seashell and on the wind that blows across the Manahan's plain with its deserted oil fields, the black sands that still hold my boyhood shadow on the silent dunes. Just reading that makes me want to go find some books by Jory Sherman. That's J-O-R-Y Sherman. He's a Spur Award-winning author. I've heard of him before. I just have never read a book, but I'm, I'm planning on it. It says here he's a real cowboy. He's lived in Texas for many years and worked the rodeo circuit. So that, again, is from the book Forever Texas, edited by Mike Blakely and Mary Elizabeth Goldman. You might want to pick a copy up for yourself. It's filled with lots of great things like that. And I thought it was appropriate to end with that because that idea and the ideas that shape us is central to what I'm going to try to focus on. I'm trying to give different perspective than what I've even used in the past to try to get a better understanding. And I hope y'all will join in that with me. So thanks again to everybody for listening. We're going to end this episode with two songs from two different Texas spotlight artists. One by Seth Jones from his album, as it changes the title track, as it changes Uh, I will let you know that Seth does have a new release out called Suicide Day. It is a dark masterpiece uh, written from the perspective of deep depression. So there's caution there that it is very deep but meaningful. But also keep in mind that it is not a celebration. It's an album he created to shed light on what it's like for people that are in a depressive state. And the other song we're going to finish with after that, after we listen to Seth Jones do as it changes, we're going to listen to Derek McClendon and his song, Some Texas Town. Take care of yourself. Take care of each other. Be kind. Adios. To the hip Ain't no tombstone big enough For all this guilt Got a hole dug in the ground It's way too deep Because I ain't half the man That I know I should be 
Girl, let's leave this life behind See what good luck we can find In some Texas town We'll never turn around Never turn around Just need our love A pair of old boots This guitar and that'll be enough We could change our names We could break these chains well, Honey, well, let's settle down And live life in the slow lane Cause I got Texas on my mind So girl, let's leave this life What good luck we can find Some Texas town We'll never turn around Never turn around If you take my hand I'll take you to the promised land I know that your mom will not forgive me or understand But I got Texas on my mind So girl, let's leave this life behind See what good luck we can find In some Texas town We'll never turn around in some Texas town. We'll never turn around. We'll never turn around. We'll never turn around. We'll never turn around. We'll